tired going to there Friday. People sucked it up. Watched some baseball last night because that was. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that's a classic. That was a classic. I, I don't want to get too caught up in the moment. That was a classic baseball game. 3 2. That to me is just about the perfect baseball score in a big game, in a must win game. You had a signature kind of ish, debatable ish, fun to talk about performance from Verlander who gets the win but puts eight base runners on. Only gives up the two runs to the Phillies, but. The first batter he faces is a huge bomb to Kyle Schwarber. And people are going, oh, my God, he's going to do this again. He's a joker. I was, and by people, I mean me. The people I mean, me on the couch watching the game was going, oh, my God, this dude's a choker. This is real. This is in his head now. Um, you got the McCatch, Chaz McCormick, the number one Chaz, the only passable Chaz on planet Earth making an incredible play at the wall to save a, a double that changes the complexion of that entire game. You have the Astros getting out of a jam with runners on second and third, one out, with a one-run lead. They get out of it. Their bullpen just continues to be one of the stories of the, the, the entire postseason. And, yeah, you thought for a second that maybe it was going to come down to Bryce Harper's bat of course, he ends up getting plunked. That was kind of anticlimactic. But, man, what a game. I, I've got a ton of thoughts on it. I'm going to talk to Jonathan Papelbond later in the show. We'll see. We'll see. We will see if we do that. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to him about it. I also kind of want to get a few of his thoughts on uh, Jay's offseason because this, this has to be a bit of an eye-opener, right? This World Series, and, and this is going to be a recurring thing for me, and this will be the last thing I say on the World Series for now. Um, I can't help but look at things through the lens of what should the Blue Jays be doing, right? Because, and I, I think that a lot of teams, especially hockey, you can see how teams end up making mistakes when it comes to team building based on who won the year before, right? We, we've seen this in the past. Sometimes it can be helpful. Sometimes it can really screw you up. But trying to emulate a champion, usually to me, I don't really have a problem with it. Uh, it's when you overextend your belief of your stars being closer to another team's stars and trying to convince yourself that the, the depth pieces can work, blah, blah, blah. You get where I'm going with this. Um, but I think it's a good thing to try to learn from champions or to try – and I'm not calling the Astros those champions yet, but they're there. And if there's one thing from this postseason that I'm really taking away for the Toronto Blue Jays – it's two of the things that were the most obvious things for them in the first place. One, they clearly need more strikeouts, like more power arms in the bullpen. Like, I actually feel a little stupid even gassing myself up and getting to believe in the Toronto Blue Jays bullpen heading into the postseason just because they were performing well in the regular season. You need to have the power arms that come in and get big strikeouts. Like I said, one of the big swing moments in that game last night is the eighth inning where you're going, I can't believe the Phillies are going to tie this with a tough-ass team. And guess what? You bring in a high-power arm, and they get a big strikeout with the scenario I always talked about, the runner on third with one out. They, they just didn't have enough of those guys. The second part of it, though, is the thing that is the Cleveland model. Everyone talks about Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland. Hey, they put the ball in play. They put the ball in play. They play hard, and they're gritty. Yeah, the Astros. You know who else does that? The Astros. The Astros do that. 
The Astros don't really strike out. Last night, they had a bunch, and it was a shocking thing to watch. Blue Jays strike out too much. Too many guys with empty at-bats. And that's why it feels at times like that offense, when you would look at the numbers at the end of the season and go, Blue Jays top in just about every category. Why are we always complaining about the offense? Why doesn't it feel this way at times? It's because they can just string together those strikeouts like nobody's business. And the Astros just, they, they do a better job of putting the ball in play. And when it's playoff baseball, I just, that's what you want. You want the guys who at least advance the runners and continue to put pressure on the pitchers, continue to put pressure on bullpens, all of it. And that's going to be the evolution of this team over the offseason to me. Better big arms, better power arms. Don't care how you get them, find a way to get them. And a few less strikeouts around your stars that you clearly don't want to move off of. Um, speaking of building around your stars, big weekend for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Massive weekend for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, it does kind of feel like this has always been a roller coaster in the city in terms of the way that we've talked about this team. It's always the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. Um, there never really seems to be a middle ground. And I, I think that's what happens when you have a core that rolls over year over year and you've just collected a larger sample. Um, it's that you can have a bigger sweeping takeaway about a group or you can turn it into, well, this is a short sample and we've seen other samples that has been good. It's just they, they can be a very confusing team. But it feels like if they can go into this weekend and collect four points from the Boston Bruins and the Carolina Hurricanes, that everything is going to be back in calm waters. It, it really does feel like over this next stretch, these next four games, Boston, Carolina, who am I missing? The Golden Knights and Pittsburgh, that if they can just go 500 even through that group, that you're going to feel a little bit better about the Maple Leafs. If they go above 500, people are going to be saying that everyone overreacted. And if they go below 500, I think that the... Uh, I'm trying to think of you know the you know the uh, way Jim Leahy would describe a storm continues. Uh, Luke Fox, senior reporter for Sportsnet, he joins me now. What's up, buddy? How we doing? I'm oh, doing pretty good. It's my uh, my son's birthday. He wants to open his presents. So I said we got. I got to talk to JD first, and then you can get to your your presents. So shout out to my boy Willie. Says, Happy Willie. birthday, bud. Happy birthday, Willie, but this – go. I'll just fill. Like, it's fine. I feel like a war criminal. I'm just picturing this poor boy just like in his, you know, flat-brim hat, sitting, looking at his dad, waiting with his present, just sitting there like, Dad, can I have attention? You're, you're always on the road. You're with the leaves. You got back home. You're like, just after more work. This is a real cats in the cradle that you just put on me here. No, no. It's just teaching them discipline. Yeah. He'll appreciate oh. it more if he has to wait for it. Uh, I guess like what nice gift for him that, you know, you and I both uh, hip hop aficionados. Um, I don't know how much of a Drake guy you are, but I, I did. I did wait up and I did listen to it last night. Like uh, before I even went to bed, and I listened to it again this morning. You get a chance oh. to listen. No, no, I I'm I'm struggling after uh, 11, 12 days on West Coast time. Yeah. My body's still trying to adjust. So I went I kind of went to bed early last night. What, what's uh, what's the word? What do you what do you think? So I usually don't like to judge an album until I realize how much I come back to it. But I think this is quite good. I do okay. have my – I'm not the biggest 
21 fan, and so part of me is listening to it going, what other MCs could Drake have chosen to do a collaboration with like this? Uh, but my initial feeling was it's it's pretty fire. It's it's pretty like there's a let's I will be using this album a lot uh, at the gym. This is like a very much workout oh. album that like hits hard. Like it's gonna be good. There's extra yeah. plates. There's extra plates because of this album. It's really good. Um, That's good to hear because I was not a fan of the last release. No, the last release, well, again, it was a dance album. So anybody yeah. that likes hip-hop was kind of like, you know, and then if you were a fan of dance music, uh, <laughs> then you went, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted. Um, new West Side, though, too. It's like really, really good. I hope you listen to that one, too. Um, okay, so how big is this weekend for you? Oh, this is huge because they're actually playing real teams. Like yeah. la- the, the Flyers game, I was talking with someone, that game only meant something if they had lost it. Right, if they had lost that game at, yeah. or looked poor playing against the Flyers, whose record is inflated because Carter Hart's been playing out of his mind, but you look at that roster, you look at uh, all the the guys they have injured, um, they should beat that team. Coming in tired off a of back-to-back, going in overtime in Madison Square Garden too, like with starting a goalie that's never won a game in the NHL, they should beat the wheels off them. So I think it was a great night. You know, the fact that John Tavares got a hat trick and was dominant all over the ice. The fact that they finally got to five goals and showed some offense and, and beat a team decisively in the third period when it could have went either way that first seven seconds. Oh my goodness. Like Samsonov comes up with a big save that, that was a, a really, you look back and that was a turning point in the game. Um, so if they had a lost that one, I think it, you know, the city would have been on fire. But for them to win and show some heart and, you know, Mark Giordano, all that, I think those are all good signs. But that win isn't enough for me to say, okay, they got their game together. I want to see how their game looks against real teams. And and we got the number one team in the whole league coming in tomorrow night in Boston. So this will be a real test because the best team that I've seen them play, they've lost to – to a lot of teams that are, are subpar. They've won a couple. The best team I saw them play, the most organized team, was when they were in Vegas. Yeah. Like the Golden Knights look like a real team. They look organized. They look disciplined. They look patient. They have some skill. They're well-rounded. They have a real decor. That's what Boston is right now. So how do they, not, not just how, how many points can they get against Boston Carolina, but how do they look? Like the, my criticisms criticisms of the the team so far haven't been so much like that of that they've lost a few games like you're going to lose you're not going to go 82 and 0 it's the way that they've lost and the teams that they've lost to they've lost to disorganized teams that they should beat Vegas is a real team Boston's a real team Carolina is a real team how do they look against them that's that's what I'm really interested to see yeah, the Vegas game was the one where Keith called it unacceptable, right? Like, didn't he – or no, Mitch Marner. Somebody on the team called it unacceptable because they were just really flat to start every single period. And, I mean, if you're taking the Philly win as anything other than a building block and you're turning it into they're fixed, I, I think you're kind of a lunatic. Like, there's just no way that you could watch that game and go, ah, I knew it, they're 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 fine. Um, they've had too many stretches of just complete – shutdowns this season and it's been mind-boggling and I, I think for a lot of people it's tough because 
you put your own spin on it, right? If you're someone who really, really believes in this core, I think to a certain degree, or maybe doesn't, but just um, is trying to make an explanation of what you've seen, you go, well, these guys have had a lot of regular seasons that now mean less and less and less, and they're just at the point where it's probably tough to get up for something like this. Then you have other people who go, you've had so many failures, you would think that you would show up and be trying to tighten the screws from day one. And yeah, like now that all this attention and heat has come down onto this team, I do feel like there is an added, okay, you guys have put your stake in the ground, you've defended your coach, you've had to answer to media, you've... Uh, yeah, you've defended each other. You, whatever it is you want to say, this now stretch, it, it becomes very, very real. You can either get rid of everything or you can kind of just catapult um, every negative narrative or every, yeah, question that people have about your group into a, in a new stratosphere with some struggles this weekend. And, like, the one good thing has been Tavares. Like you mentioned, he... He's been fine. He's looked great. Um, he's been one of those guys that I think looks the most consistent. But what I can't kind of put my finger on with him is, do you think that he is having a just like much better start to the year or that it's something that when the consistent player is doing the consistent things and the guys around him are not, that he looks especially good? Like, is this a different off season? Is this a different Tavares or is this just the same Tavares, different guys around him? Well, same guy, same approach, but I think we, maybe we glossed over just how much uh, the previous off season was difficult for him. Think about how things ended in that Montreal series, right? Just a, a, the scariest injury of, of his career. Um, and it was, it was tough for him to get going. He was rehabbing. This season, this off season, this past one, he was fully healthy going into the off season. I actually, on free agency day, which was, you know, first half of July still, um, I accidentally walked into the rink. I got booted out. But I saw Tavares um, just putting in solo work by himself. He was the only uh, leap on the ice. Well, it was actually him on one end and Wayne Simmons on the other. And they were, like, doing hard, aggressive solo work. And it was like, this guy is so dedicated to his craft that it was a gorgeous July day. And here, here's this guy just, you know, starting on the ice already. Like, he's just so diligent. And I think the previous one, he started late because he was rehabbing from, you know, his injuries that he suffered um, early in that Montreal series. I think he put in a lot of work. And, there was, and he, you know, he talked about how that benefit, benefited him. I believe he switched skating coaches as well. Um, and he came into camp, you know, really determined, raring to go. And then he had that oblique uh, strain, and that set him back a little bit. But he responded to that very quickly and kind of caught, I think, a lot of people off guard because he came back a week earlier than predicted and looked just fine. And he's been very consistent. Uh, I think his his ice time going down has helped him. I think that's a smart thing as, as players get older. Like, I, I was shocked just considering the impact he made on that game Wednesday. I looked up at his ice time. And it was under 13 minutes. It was 12-something. And it was like you felt like every time he was on the ice, uh, the puck was on his blade or he was making an impact in, in some way. And then it, you're just kind of shocked that he did that in such a short amount of ice time. And I think sometimes, you know, ice time is this thing that that's how you reward players. The more ice time, the better. But I think you have to realize what stage the player's at in his career. And maybe he's most effective I'm not saying he needs to be under 13 minutes every night, but 
there was a lot of penalty kill and all that. But I think sometimes for to get the most out of a player, sometimes you have to find the right range, and his range might be decreasing a little bit with age um, because when he's been on, he's been on, he's been very effective. Yeah, that's just a little bit tougher to do if part of the discussion around Mitch Marner has been how do you limit his minutes a little bit more. If you're saying, hey, take a few away from Mitch, try to take away a few from Tavares, you're putting more on a group that has I, – I can't really find too many positive reviews for so far. But the depth, you know, they, they have their best game against the Flyers, which, again, does come with some caveats. But still, like those guys played well enough where – I would assume everyone stays in the lineup. Everyone gets the rollover tonight. Uh, well, no, I would I would assume Timothy. Well, on Saturday night, I, I would assume Timothy Lilligren comes in. That's right. a big change. So I meant more of the forward group, but the, yeah, the like I, I'm excited for him to be back on the ice. Yeah, I, I, I would say you win and you're in. Um, so who were the scratches? Nick Robertson. Yeah. You want to throw uh, throw the kid in against against the Bruins? I'm guessing no. Um, and then uh, Obey Kubel, who seems to be in the doghouse right now. So I, I would assume, I, my guess would be, yeah, that they roll back the same forwards, and the and the change would be Lilligren uh, making his debut because yeah, Keith can't wait to get a right shot and another right shot in the, the lineup. No, it's huge that they're getting Lilligren back, and and I'll go there in in a second. But I do want to just stick with the forwards just for what you said there, and this is the, that's the reason. Is Nick Robertson, I'm guessing, is going to be out two nights in a row. And maybe he draws in because it's a back-to-back on the Sunday. But, mm. man, a lot of people were very excited about Robertson. He had a great camp. He gets sent down. He gets in the lineup. He has a really good game. And then the rest of the team is struggling, and then he ends up being one of the guys that gets pulled out of the lineup despite, you know, I, I didn't really see what, Robertson was doing that put him on a lower level or on a similar level with some of the other guys. Like, and, and especially given like where they started to slot him into the lineup, do you think that this could end up being a scenario? Like, If he's not playing, they're going to have to send him back down. How many of these games does he have to miss or how many games does he draw out before they make that decision again or that has to become a decision? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen him play in that Philly game. I, I just of think, course. you know, some of his I guess some of his underlying numbers are, aren't great. And I know he, like he even said, like he, he felt sore during that, that road trip. Like he's, he's not used to the NHL grind. He's been up and down, but he, this is, this is still relatively new for him. Like he, he had a great line. He's like, I, I feel sore in, in parts of my body that I didn't know could feel sore. And then one of the reporters said like, where? And he's like my shoulders just from like giving hits, taking hits, um, so there's, there's still a learning curve with this guy, but what he has is the ability, if the puck gets on a stick in the right spot, he can break the game open, whereas the replacements for him, you know, aren't that. Uh, I, I wonder how this is going to end with Robertson. Like, you think about the organization's treatment of Rasmus Sandin, where he's in for a while, and then he's healthy scratched, and maybe he's dealing with an injury, and... and there seems to be this fluctuation and that's kind of Robertson's career. Like mm-hmm. after he had that amazing game in Dallas where he was the hero, he referred to the game of hockey as a business. And I was like, this is like one of your greatest moments of your life. And he's like, why do you call it a business? It's not a game. And he's like, cause that's what I've learned. And he's like mm-hmm. the last few weeks, like he earned a right to be on that roster right from training camp. But because of, the balance sheet, he ended up having to start with the Marlies. And, 
you know, it's got to be frustrating for a guy like like him. And, and I just wonder how he is taking this, you know, being being a scratch right now. And um, but like you said, I I would since it's back to back, I would expect him to play one of the games. Yeah, I I hope he does, and I hope that this ends up working out. But it's it's hard to like I, I saw Kevin Weeks's tweet about the Robert, about Robertson. And it, it just kind of seemed very out of the blue, and I went, "Where? What is like? What is this?" Um, and then you kind of put it all together, and you go, "Maybe this is a something. Like maybe him coming back out of the lineup in a soft spot against a Philadelphia Flyers team where you would expect a, a guy like Nick Robertson to thrive a little bit more." Um, like you saw the way the Leafs were chasing cookies, like at the end of that game, like guys wanted yeah. their stats. They were like, "Yeah, this is a good stat spot." Like, we're going to get some of these back. And he had to sit that out. He's watching Dennis Malgan play instead of him going, all right, like, I guess. Um, I would just imagine that that had to be a frustrating night. And now he's sitting out for Hockey Night in Canada. And then it just it feels like a lot of pressure on a kid who's done nothing but really show up to perform well on a Sunday night um, against the Carolina Hurricanes on a back-to-back. Anyway, I just think it's something to watch. Um, but you mentioned it. The, I think the biggest story going into the weekend, other than just like from a – uh, like a non-top top, uh, top tier player standpoint on this roster against the good teams is um, Timothy Lilligren drawing back in. Uh, some good like highlights I've seen from the Marlies. I haven't watched Marlies games, but I, he's he's looking good. He's looking big. He's looking strong. Yeah, where does he slot in? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I I I don't know. We're gonna find out, you know, in a, in a few hours when they practice, but. The D pairs have, have been so jumbled, and because things haven't been going well, Sheldon Keith felt the need that he has to insulate Justin Hall and play him with TJ Brody, who is the left shot most comfortable playing on the right side. I'd like to see, you know, the, the right side be Brody, Hall, and Lilligren. And, you know, I, I'd like to see Morgan Riley reunited with Brody because that's the top pair that the organization feels comfortable with. You're going up against, you know, the Boston Bruins. It's, you want to put your best foot forward. I think you start, you know, having these scattered pairs, these makeshift pairs, I don't think it'll work that well. I, I, my guess would be he'd be with uh, Giordano. And, you know, I think people should temper expectations. I know everyone's excited to have him back because he should be an improvement. But this is a guy who... This training camp, this is a guy who's coming off hernia surgery. He's still a, a relatively inexperienced player in the league. I, I love the promise that he brings, but I, I, it's going to be hard to step into your first game of the year and you're going against a team that is acting like a powerhouse right now. So, um, you know, yes, get excited that he's getting healthy and getting back, but temper your expectations that all of a sudden he's going to revolutionize this blue line. Yeah, I just the the way it's been right now, how bad it's been at times. I I can't help but be excited about seeing him. I can't believe I will tell you this, uh, based on uh, who I where I have stood on Timothy Lilligren, especially just from like you know people in the know who watched a lot of him coming up through the organization, kind of giving me the the odd tip, the odd thing, getting the odd look. I'm shocked to be this excited to see him play tonight. (laughs) Let's go. Let's see this kid like step in. And I I really do believe in the the potential pairing between him and Giordano. I really do think it can work. Um, Last one. Uh, How are you interpreting quote a ways away end quote on Matt Murray's timeline? (laughs) Well, the original timeline puts him around November 12th minimum. So 
my guess would be another week, but you know, I, I that's just that's just guessing. That as long as Samsonov is playing the way he's playing, that takes the pressure off rushing Murray. And I think the Leafs should learn from Peter Mrazek's early return last at this time, around this time last season when he got injured very early, came back, got injured immediately again. Uh, they have to be patient. But man, <laughs> it, it's just such a scary thought. I, all, all respect to Samsonov and for Dubas for picking up Samsonov at a very reasonable rate, one point eight million for one year. I think so far that's been his best move of the off season. But you are one injury away from starting Eric Schalgren as your number one goalie, and that is a frightening thought. So they have to be careful with Samsonov's workload. Uh, Samsonov has to continue to perform. You're putting a lot on this guy right now. Yeah, well, there's been this whole news cycle about uh, what to do with Muzzin's LTIR space, like his cap space. Should he just remain on LTIR for the entire season? Um, and everyone or a lot of people have opined about making that rush trade, right? The, hey, you got to go out and you got to fill the Muzzin-sized hole, as people continue to put it. And all I can think is, how can you rush to any trade when you can't, like, especially one that involves your roster, like your skaters, when you have such big question marks in net? Like, I, I just don't, yeah, I, and part of me goes, they're going to have to be patient and they're going to have to wait and see how Matt Murray develops, like his situation with the injury and if he can come back and stay healthy. Because, yeah, you use up that cap space on a blue liner, you use it up on potentially a forward trade that you explore early on in the year. And one of these goalies ends up going down. Um, yeah, I think it could be a huge regret like this. This has them, I think in a bit of a state of paralysis, uh, Luke Fox, uh, great work as always enjoy these games this weekend, man. These are going to be some fun ones. Oh yeah. Can't wait. All right. Take care, JD. See you pal. Good luck to uh, your son, Willie opening his presents now. Finally, he finally gets to open the presents. Enjoy them, Willie. I hope your dad got you something good. Uh, yeah, I. everybody knows it's a big weekend. Nobody's saying anything revelatory here. This is pretty clear and obvious. Um, these are massive measuring stick games. What's wild is, despite how poorly the Leafs have played to start the season, uh, I can't tell if it's me being optimistic or what, but yeah, Maybe it's just having seen this group go up and down and always find ways to bounce back, but I do have this just underlying feeling that they're going to they're going to win one of these two games in a convincing way, or at least maybe not in a convincing way like they beat them as badly as they beat the Flyers, but like a convincing way where it becomes very clear that they belong with these two teams that everyone loves to now talk about as contenders. Hurricanes were very much the sexy pick to win the Stanley Cup this year. I said it before the preseason started, or sorry, before the season started. I was not as high on Carolina as some other people were. I didn't view the getting Brent Burns thing as, oh, what, now you're the team? Everyone thought you didn't have enough forward depth. You lose Trocek, and now you're better. You're, like, a, a lot better. Like, I saw one outlet where like I can't remember how what the percentage was of their writers that picked Carolina to win the cup but it was high it's like 30% of their writers ended up picking Carolina to win the Stanley Cup that's a that's a good chunk 
I don't really love predictions. I prefer to do, you know, the analysis or try to pick out the stories and comment on the stories, but I I really do feel like if you had to, let's just put it this way, if you had to ask me what's more likely, that the Leafs go into this weekend and lay a total egg and get absolutely murdered by these two teams and don't look like they belong on the same playing sheet or they're going to be in these two games and they're going to play up to their competition a little bit better and I was going to say go 500 but I actually as much as like they absolutely need points it's this, they're a weird team where you feel like you they could lose two of these games and you feel better somehow <laughs> like they they could lose two of these games and play better and play complete games and hang in them and be really competitive and you could sort of squint and still feel fine given the circumstances and given the parameters anyway i'm not trying to give them an easy way out i'm just saying i feel like they're going to have a decent weekend or I feel like it's more likely they have a better weekend than a bad one, which is shocking given the track record that they put up this year. We'll see. Uh, Jackie Redman, NHL Network, how she's feeling about it. Next. No one wants to hear this at 9.35 in the morning, especially when they work in sports, so they're up late. Uh, but my, you know, I, I got to expose my next guest just a little bit here. It's Jackie Redman of the NHL Network. What's up? <laughs> Good morning. What's going morning. on? I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> I know. Just, I just wanted you to be a little nervous, but it's not. It's, you know, I like to tease, but it's not anything bad. I just wanted to say that you are a like. You have a lot of takes, and I don't know. Sometimes I don't feel like you know NHL Network. You get to just be like. You, you're doing a lot of setup, then you get some spots, but TV is very different, right? Like, you, you're on the clock. You're hard on the clock. And this is different. Like, this is a different format where I, pro- I do too many takes, right? I have to do too many because it's hours of filling. And then people go, this was really stupid. I'm like, yeah, you talk about the hockey team five days a week, okay? Let's see how many stupid things you say. It's not really revelatory. But... You are a bit of a take artist when it comes to the text, right? Like every once in a while, I'll get like a little chain from Jackie. It'll be like, here's five things that Jackie's been thinking about with the Toronto Maple Leafs that she's, she's not taking air. You know, it's, it's a few different things. So we're going to get into some takes today. But I need to start with this. Um, I do a segment called Liars Who Lie. Um, apparently, okay. a man in China hid $43 million in lottery winnings from his wife um, and his family. And he claims it was because he feared it would, quote, make them lazy. He also stayed in a hotel right after he won the lottery winnings. And he says that was because he was afraid of losing the ticket. Um, Your husband comes to you uh, (laughs) years after winning $43 million and tells you this story. What is the fallout? Oh, I'm pissed for sure. <laughs> Divorce mean? is the only you've answer. Been a life t- of, you've been you've been keeping me from a life of luxury for years. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. that's divorce territory. What do you mean? Yeah. That's a, it's like you're you're you're, you're hiding a lot. Like, that's a huge lie. That's a life lie. You know what I mean? No, it's a not a white lie. lie. That is like no. you are. You have literally hidden 
our entire lives from us. Like you've kept us in the, in the shadows while who knows what you're doing with that money while you're off in hotels and doing whatever. Like, no no kidding. No divorce. Divorce Here's the thing. This guy clearly thought of this lie right away where he went, okay, I'm just going to, if I, when I get caught, I'm going to say that it was for you, you know, because there's no other way to spin it. It has to be for the people. Like I was protecting you from yourselves, but the level of offense you would feel as the children or as the partner of wait, so you married me and you didn't feel like you could trust me with the money. Cause you thought I'd become a horrific person. Like you just thought I was some money away from being a degenerate. <laughs> like that's it. That's how you feel about this. I also question how are you even capable of hiding that amount of money? Like, oh, so how did he? How, no, but how how did he enjoy that money or do things with that money without it becoming <laughs> obvious? Like, where where is this yeah. coming from? You have Jackie, a, this you have this is such the Lamborghini girls, now? No, no, no. This is such the, the like woman side of the answer. Where you're just like, how could he even enjoy it without his wife? <laughs> it's like, here he no. was just out like gallivanting, having the best Nobody time said. with the fellas. <laughs> he was just loving life, <laughs> hiding it, living a life of sin. And you're like, he wouldn't even have fun without her and the kids. Like, no, he was having a great time. <laughs> he was having the no, best time with the No, because how do you hide it? Unless you're not you living go. in the same house as the wife. Then you have to be sneaky about it. You have to hide yeah. it. You have to you have to be like responsible with it. Otherwise, you're gonna just have all these red flags that like something's going on. You're living a, a you're you're living a secret criminal life, like making money somehow, and your wife doesn't know where it's coming from. So you would have to be super sneaky and shady and come up with all these ways to do fun things without anyone knowing that you've got this influx of money. That's yeah, see, what I mean. This is- this is also harder for you because you're like you're on the gram, you know. You you let that you let a lot of the world in, right? Like, hey, what's Jackie doing? You're on Be Real. You can't have Be Real and be hiding forty three million dollars. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't work. I'm terrible this on guy... Be Real, though. <laughs> yeah, I never. Yeah, post. guess what? Yeah, guess what? There's too many things. Like, I... there's too many things. No, it's not too many things. It's that all everybody got all excited for Be Real and they went oh, this is a cool one. Like now it's going to really show people that social media is fake. And then all of you that got it realized, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want people seeing me just like in my on my couch doing nothing. Like I am getting re- rid of Be Real. You just said what everyone says about it, which is, yeah, I don't really post anymore. It's like, yeah, because unless you literally live the life of a model where you're on a boat every single day, then it's not a very interesting app. And no one really cares about you sitting on your couch. Like no one cares. Um Okay, so you are a social media star, um, a, su- a social media superpower. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, you know, you built, you built it from know. the ground up. You know, you're, you're a super that's media true. star. That is true. Thank you for that. Not everyone does. Yeah. There's some shady, shady people out there. There are some shady They're people bot out there followers. hiding. They're bot followers. They're whatever. They're just nefarious ways, building off of other people's backs, you know? Like, there's a lot of people like that, that, like, attach to someone who has a big oh, yeah. following. They get catapulted into a different sphere. Um, so yeah, um, you. I think that you are one of the like top dogs in hockey Twitter, and I know that you try to stay out of the like toxic zone, but it's it's impossible not to. It's impossible not to have a little bit of it. And your buddy Mike Rupp, he has a tweet yesterday that 
Actually, sorry, it was two days ago, I guess, but it, it really popped off yesterday where he's just like, hey, I didn't really like this from Austin Matthews. And it became like, yeah, I looked at it for probably a couple minutes. Every, just about every single person missed the point. They put their own spin on what they wanted it to be. And yeah. I brought this up with Ennis. Like, I can't remember if it was this week or last week, but I've been saying for a while that this Leafs fan base is just like, it's as bad as it's ever been. Um, usually being a Leaf fan, for me anyways, growing up, it was always, hey, everybody made fun of you. That was the other fan bases. But you had this like core, um, this is the, the it's, it was the passion that unites us. Like as much as we joke about this passion thing, it was like, that's the thing that unites everybody. Everyone's kind of misery, loves company, and everyone's in this together. And I can't tell if it's just because I've been paying maybe less attention to social media. And so when I jump on there, I'm getting like more of the bad or if it does feel so much worse, but where are you at with it right now? Because yeah, I, I'm kind of at the point where it's, it's hard for me even to just do anything when it comes to giving Leafs takes on social media, because it just feels like, Hey, no, this is just going to become whatever the other person wants it to be and a breeding ground for hate. Yeah, you know, I think there's a few, I have a few thoughts on this. And the first is just that you're just not allowed to have um, a different opinion anymore. And if you do, instead of there being just a conversation online about the subject, it's always, okay, here's my opinion. And then everyone either attacks you and tells you why you're wrong or just criticizes you as a human being that has nothing to do with, with what you're actually talking about. I feel like we can't just talk about things. Like, why can't you and I disagree about something and have peaceful discourse? It feels like that doesn't exist on Twitter. Everything is a fight. Everything is an attack on someone's opinion. And I, that's the thing that I hate about Twitter because there's no, there's no productivity. Like, I find... I think most people would agree when you have a disagreement with someone about something or a different opinion and you can actually have a normal conversation about it, both sides learn something. Like the worst television ever is when everyone on the panel agrees. Like that's, that's not useful to anybody because you don't think about it from any other type of angle or perspective. So that's my biggest issue with Twitter. Um, and yeah, it, it is there's also, I think, with Leafs Nation specifically, isn't it kind of a microcosm of, like, old school versus new school analytics versus whatever you want to call the other side, where it's like, okay, how do we treat this team? I think the organization itself is asking this question, like, okay, how do we treat today's superstars? Do we have to be super nice to them and protect their feelings and don't criticize them too hard and let them have what they want, and they're going to figure it out on their own, and they'll mature in their own way? Or... Like, do we need to be hard on them? Do we need to, you know, bench Mitch Marner for a full period and not one shift because we have to send the message? And if you only do it for one shift, then you're not sending the right message. I feel like it's kind of that at play where half the fan base is like, okay, we're too hard on these guys. We've got to be nicer. We can't freak out every time they go on a losing streak or have a tough two weeks. Like, guys, we got to believe. we got to be positive. And then there's the other side of the fan base that's like, enough is enough. It's been six years. It's not early anymore. It's the same results. We can't keep doing the same thing. So I, I honestly feel like Leafs Nation on social media anyways is having the same battle that the organization is having. Am I making sense? Yeah, no, this makes a lot of sense. I would just say that I do – I think at times we tend to do it like an age group thing because it's it's just an, it's an easier way to frame it because, yeah, I've met – you know, I, I do think that 
just in general, if you're using social media as a platform for uh, your sports opinions, you're likely to be uh, like a, a younger person. I don't know. I don't I, like. I, I don't think that my uh, mom or you know, if my dad was around, I don't think my dad would be on Twitter like firing away twig takes. He wasn't really doing that as much, but. Yeah, I think that that's just it is that it's gotten to the point now where there is no, hey, maybe it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that. It just always feels like it's one extreme or the other. And and that's what's really frustrating, especially with sports, is that it's like, well, there's 82 of these games. So you're going to be able to find things that you want, whether it is even like analytics. Okay, then you're going to find some charts that work for you. You're going to find some graphs that work for your argument. Like I've seen some where they've been showing um, – that it, that Pierre Engvall has had a good season this year. I'm like, this guy has a point in 10 games, maybe two now. He's got one goal. He's been dreadful. He got scratched by his coach. And of course you can find a chart that does that. And then you have the other side where it's like, yeah, you can highlight a lack of toughness from one moment using a video and say like extrapolated into a huge thing. I just, yeah, I hate where it's at right now. I really do. I hate where everything is a hot take um, or that it's you know accused of being a hot take. I hate seeing people not be able to learn from one another. I hate seeing everyone be so binary in their thinking. I try to make sure that I avoid it too. But oh my god, it just it's really really hard to look at where this fan base is right now and just say I actually part of the reason now feel like I want changes just so that people can stop having the same argument, stop making this a culture war now. <laughs> you know, like I'm like okay, yeah, the, enough yeah, of I, the I, arguments about Dubas and about Shanahan and about this core. Just like get rid of the Leafs for a couple, like take the toys away from the children, essentially. Well, even even like the even the Mike Rupp tweet or, or breakdown, right? Like even that was taken into like an old school versus new school debate when that's not even what Mike Rupp was trying to say. Like he wasn't that's saying that Matthew put your own spin I, on it. I don't think he wasn't, he wasn't think, saying that Matthew should, you know, drop the gloves and start throwing fists. Like he was talking about team camaraderie and team dynamic, having each other's backs, like all, all of that stuff. And, and his point was entirely missed. And then what bothers me, and you see this on Twitter a lot too, is that the masses, I mean, I think that video has like close to a million views on it. It's been retweeted everywhere. I feel like every media outlet has used it to spark conversation on their shows. And everyone, you know, starts attacking Mike Rupp as if Mike Rupp didn't spend over a decade in the NHL, win a Stanley Cup, and like might actually know something about team dynamics and how teams bond and, and build that. And it's wild to me that we're just so quick to write people who actually have experience in the league that none of the rest of us have. We just attack their opinion and go, oh, well, you weren't, you weren't Austin Matthews in your career, so what do you know? And it's like, actually, he would probably know more because he's the guy that was jumping into those situations and making sure that people that he had people's backs and was standing up for the stars. So, actually, he, I would argue that he knows more so because of the type of player that he was. So, I just think it's, it's crazy how often we write actually credible people off with their opinion because of the era that they played in or, or whatever it might be. It's just, it's just crazy. It's a crazy, it's crazy in those Twitter streets, you know, yeah, it is. <laughs> I actually try not to about the least too much because I'm just yeah. like, I can't handle the negativity and I've gotten to a place in my life where I'm like, I want hockey to still be fun for me. And sometimes on Twitter, it's not fun. No, not sometimes, most of the times. No, I, I think that the point you make about Rupp is like a really good one because 
yeah, experience should matter. I'm sorry. Like when it comes to weighting opinions, this is where I think that um, God, this is like a getting into the bit of the self-serving territory with the conversation. I just promise we'll move on and I'll, I'll get to the next thing in, in a second. But I do think that if you didn't grow up being online as much, you didn't value your opinion on everything the same way. Like you went, well, this is your area of expertise. Like I want to hear what you have to say on this and that's an, one thing or another. I do think if you grew up having a Twitter account and you've amassed, you know, a thousand Twitter followers, even two thousand, whatever, you're one of those like just accounts that's like there's a million of them, right? There's a million accounts that seem to have between like 500 and, you know, a couple thousand Twitter followers. You're that account and you're that for years and years and years. There's so many of them. I, I genuinely feel like people have grown up with these or had these so long that they, they do feel like a different level of self-import, like that they feel as though they're on display for a really long yeah. time and that they can weigh into stuff in a different way. And like that's what I see happening here. Like there are so many people that are like, we're great at this on social media or we know more than this or this person's an idiot but not me and you go – wow, you have really kind of cultivated an ego around this account of self-import that is just way out of whack with like what reality is. And the crazy thing I thought about with the Rupp thing is I guarantee you, and this is something that always gets made with social media, but I think that this one is especially true. You take just about anybody that insulted Mike Rupp that day and put them in front of him and he gives that conversation and they are licking his boots going, I, I, I totally see what you're saying there, Mr. Rupp. And like... It's just embarrassing. Like, I cannot imagine firing off something like that when you know deep down that you would be literally on your knees licking boots if the situation was in person. Like, it's it's insane. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, now I'll move off of it. Okay, so what is your Leafs feeling heading into this weekend? Because it's big, right? It's Boston. It's Carolina. It's two heavyweights, and they're in a – yeah, they're they're in a weird spot. Yeah, I th- obviously I'm, I'm going to say what everyone says, which is this is a huge weekend. They're facing some legitimately good teams. We've spent most of the season watching them, you know, lose to teams that they should be manhandling, right? So it's like, okay, you've got the Boston Bruins who already have a six-point lead in the division somehow, are just rolling despite missing their best defensemen and key pieces to their lineup. So. Um, Yeah, it's a big weekend. I'm less concerned with how many points the Leafs get out of the weekend and more concerned with what they look like, how they handle it, what is the narrative of the game, how do they respond to adversity, is there intensity in the way that they play. Like, that's what I am looking at, and I don't want to be that boring person that's like, oh, process over results. But I think with this team, it really matters. I think it matters how they look from the the puck drop on first period to the end of the game. So do I expect them to just go and all of a sudden, because they beat the lowly flyers that they're just going to go into the weekend and look amazing against Boston and Carolina and then Vegas after that. No, I don't, but I just want, I want to see the Leafs team that I know is in there. And I feel like we got glimpses of that against the flyers where it was like, okay, not only did they win the game against Philly, but they did it with some swagger, which I think is important. You know, JT's out there, pots the hat trick. It, It was fun. It was like, oh, that's, that's the Leafs that I know, you know, like there's, there's flashes of that in this game. So I think they should be feeling good about themselves, but um, I, I just, I'm worried about the process because I'm not worried about the Leafs getting a playoff spot. I, they're going to make the playoffs. I'm still not worried about that, but how are they going to get there? What are they going to look like on the road to that 
to the postseason because it's not as easy as last year. The, the league is a lot tougher this year, a lot harder this year, especially in that division, I think, than it has been in years past. So, like, yes, you're better than the majority of the teams in the league, but walking in and getting those two points, as we have seen already, is not going to be a cakewalk like it has been the last couple of years for teams like Toronto, Tampa, um, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm nervous, though. I'm nervous going into the weekend. What will it be? I, I don't know, but I think it's immensely important. Yeah, um, and you don't have to feel bad about the processors results thing because it's literally what I did going into the break before I had you. <laughs> I went, okay, I feel good. like they could lose these two <laughs> games. Yeah, I said I felt like I could lose these two games and I could somehow weirdly feel better about them than I have uh, in some of the other games, even ones where uh, they've they've been able to collect some points. Um, last thing before you go, uh, Ryan Reynolds is doing, like I think, one of the most genius marketing campaigns ever by saying he's going to buy the Ottawa Senators when, like, he doesn't even have like a quarter of the money to buy them, um, and yeah, like clearly he would be trying. I was like, how much money? How much money does Ryan Reynolds have? Like, can he buy a team? No, no he can't. Uh, you know who he can he can buy? He can buy that soccer team that that Netflix basically paid for, right? Or whatever streaming service bought him that. Uh, that Wrexham people keep telling me to watch that show. I'm like, I've I've already watched Ted Lasso. Okay, like I prefer the fake one where I, you know, I just I'm I'm in on Ted Lasso. I'm not doing two Ted Lasso shows. Um, either way, he clearly doesn't have the money for this. Uh, quickly before you go, um, what's one thing either you buy and you know you can't afford or you shouldn't buy, or what's one thing that you desperately want but can't afford? Because I also want the Ottawa Senators and can't afford them. Oh my gosh. I, you, you even gave me a heads up on this question and I haven't come up with anything. So I did not, I did You're not. You're that rich, Jackie Redmond. All right. Like I said, the queen of Twitter making so much no. money that she couldn't think of one thing she likes but can't afford. Amazing. <laughs> this is amazing answer. No, wow. Just, we, you're, here's the thing. I, this is going to sound so it's going to sound so bad. I'm just like, I'm not a big things person. I'm really not. I really am not like, I have to have this type of car. I have to have the best iPhone or I have like, I just am not. I know that sounds not believable. You're going to tell me that that's BS, but it's true. Like I am not, a, I'm not okay. a big like possessions person. I'm really not. I'm really not. Um, okay. So yeah, All that's, right. that's how I'm going to answer the question. All right. No, it's fine. I know you're, uh, so, it's you're fine. so disappointed in me right now. <clears throat> I'm not disappointed in you. I'm actually thrilled because this is an even funnier answer. Like that you went and pulled the, I just, I have everything <laughs> I need. So there you go. Jack, you're, hey, no, that's the first time we've had a person on who has the perfect life, everyone. Hey, please take this what? in. That we just had someone on with a perfect life who needs nothing, who is very zen, okay. does not need any material things, got 24 hours to think about something that she wants, couldn't do it, couldn't pull uh, couldn't pull it up. Like, 24 no, hours. One. It's like it's like 10 hours, 11 hours. Also, and this is not even, Every, I don't even know if this is legitimate. Yeah, oh, yeah, legit. right. Okay. Legit. Well, can I buy a defenseman for the Toronto Maple Leafs, like a good one? Can I? Can that be my no, answer? It, no. Uh, I, you know how mad I'd be at you <laughs> if I you got you won millions of dollars. Like you won, I'd be more mad than like finding out uh, my wife hid forty three million dollars from me in lottery winnings. Than if my friend, like this is like when people do the GoFundMe for celebrities, like where they go get this celebrity. Oh yeah, that's go, bad. No. 
That is the worst way that any human being can spend money, is giving rich people more money for no reason. Anyway, we got to run. This was fun as always. Uh, good luck to the Leafs this weekend, and good luck to you around the hallways of the NHL network that pays you so much money uh, to talk about You're hockey. You're spreading See a bad Jackie. narrative about me right now. <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> Bye, J.D. Uh, rich Jackie Redmond of the NHL network, uh, the wealthiest woman on Twitter. Um God, you know, this that made Rich Ben Ennis nervous hearing somebody with that kind of wealth, knowing that someone is out there potentially in media with more money. Quick break, then Michael Lombardi. For like a split second last night, as I was mostly just watching the World Series and trying to ignore the Eagles game because I thought it was going to be a bloodbath, you know, it's 14-14 at halftime. I'm going, oh my God, i got to watch this game. And then, yeah. It went uh, the way that we all expected to. I, I really am starting to wonder if the Eagles could actually do this, like if they could actually run the table. Because um, you look at their schedule, and it is not overly uh, terrifying. Uh, one of the best listens in football, uh, one of my favorite uh, podcasts, the GM Shuffle podcast. Uh, host of that, Michael Lombardi, former NFL executive, host of the GM Shuffle podcast, as I mentioned, and uh, the Daily Coach newsletter. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Thank you for that. I appreciate you. Hey, uh, no sweat. I'm doing well. Um, so we're in to post-deadline time now, right? And it's weird because the NFL trade deadline never felt like much of anything for a very long time. Like, you'd have them come and go with, like, a defensive tackle going for a third-round pick and be like, well, that was the move. Like, <laughs> like that was that was the NFL trade deadline. What, what changed? Like, why has this now become something that, uh, yeah, like, why am I talking to you today about post-deadline pressures? Because the, the, the rules have changed. So free agency and the compensatory picks and the salary cap, the kind of the perfect storm, right? So let's take Bradley Chubb, for example. All right, the, the, the Broncos know they're not going to sign Bradley Chubb. Now, he's worth a compensatory third-round pick to them in the year 2024. So for them to trade him, they need something better than that. They know they have that in the bank. I mean, they're not going to sign. They're going to make sure that they don't sign any players in free agency that's going to offset that based on the calculations. So when Miami comes in and offers them a first-round pick, they're getting huge value for a player that they can't turn down that pick. So it entices them to do it. And all these trades in this marketplace now have all been above what the compensatory value would have been. So you make the deal. If you know you're not going to sign T.J. Hawkinson, if you know you're not going to sign Chase Claypool, if you know you're not going to do those things, you make the deal now. And if you feel like it doesn't really ultimately affect your team, and I think Denver felt this way. They signed, they traded for Jacob Martin, who's a pretty good edge rusher. Not great. Not as good as Chubb, but he's decent. You know, that's not going to tilt their team into to negativity. Because if you traded a player that was going to tilt your team into negativity, you wouldn't trade him. You would pay him. And I think that's ultimately the answer. Yeah. Um, I was a little surprised, not so much that they traded away Chubb, um, but the price seemed a little bit high for Miami, who, you know, has now uh, parlayed all those different draft picks that, they, that they've acquired into, uh, yeah, no more draft picks. Um, do you view Miami as a team that could actually contend? Like, how, how did you feel about the Chubb move for them? I didn't really like it because I don't think Chubb tilts. I think Chubb's a good player. I think he really is a good player. But he's one of those players that is good, but when you pay him a lot of money, all of a sudden the va- you can't really get the right value on it. 
he commands a huge salary, but his play doesn't really represent that. And I know that kind of sounds counterintuitive, but that's just the way it is. I, I think it's a you know he'll help them. They're 25th in the league in sack per plays. So obviously they needed some help in that area. They weren't getting enough pressure on the quarterback. And their defense, frankly, has not been very good. Their defense has really struggled to get off the field. It's one of the weaknesses of their team. And so because of that, you know, they feel like this will give them some more strength as they go through it, and they can kind of close the gap. Are they going to close the gap on Buffalo? You know, look, I know they beat Buffalo, but I don't see it. I don't see them closing the gap on Buffalo because their problems on defense show up. You know, points per play, they're 25th. Sacks per play, they're 25th. Forcing incomplete passes, which is a critical stat in football no one talks about, is 25th. And then their first-half defense is 30th in the National Football League. So – They've got a lot of room to grow. They've got a lot of way to go before they actually ever get where they need to go. See, this is why, again, I really love your work is forcing incomplete passes. Like, yeah, it seems so obvious, and it's just like a it's a very nice – and I still believe the Sun uh, beat the Buffalo Bills, not so much the Miami Dolphins did. But the reason why I asked you this question was I think you can interpret this next one in, in, in either way. Like, you can either be the team that's under most pressure because you made a move like Miami did – where you gave up a first-round pick to try to be a top-tier contender and then kind of fall on your face or not get to that level. Or you can be the team that didn't do something and now it comes back to haunt you. Which front office do you think is the most under pressure after this deadline? Oh, I think clearly it's Miami. I mean, they went all in, right? They went all in. And, you know, when when Tua has a game like he did against Detroit, my Twitter handle gets heated up with – you know, you hated Tua, you're an idiot, yada, yada, yada. Okay, great. <laughs> Nobody, no one tweeted me yeah. after the five-interception game that he should have thrown against Pittsburgh. Shocking, That's right? That's not how it works, Mike. You know, it's a, That's not how it works. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. I didn't get one tweet about that game. I got 75,000 of them about the last one against the pathetic Detroit Lions. <laughs> Look, they're all in. And, you know, one of the yeah. things I think that's it, that you have to take into account is the weather, right? So, you're in Toronto. You know November means colder weather. I live in New Jersey. It means colder weather. And are the Dolphins built for cold weather? Tua last year when he went to Tennessee, and, and this is kind of a lost game. They're on a huge win streak. They go into Tennessee. They open the game up. They start moving the football very effectively. Starts to rain. Cold rain. After that, it, the game is over. I mean, they couldn't throw the football. Watch the tape. Go back and watch it. Struggle. This week they go into Chicago. Now I was expecting it to be much colder, but here in America, we've got seasonally warm temperatures in the east and through the Midwest. It's more of a September day than it is a November day, but it's going to be 20-mile-an-hour winds in Chicago. How he throws that ball there is going to be interesting because anybody who watches to a play knows that when he throws the ball, you know, it's not exactly a dart. It kind of hangs there for a while, and when wind gets into fact, it becomes an issue. Yeah, that just made me reconsider whether or not I'm throwing them into uh, some teasers this weekend. So thank you for that. Okay, so the I thought the Dolphins were definitely one of the answers, but can I pitch you on the Ravens? Because they do nothing, and Mark Andrews is beat up. Bateman's out for the season now. Their two best backs are working their way back from um, recurring lower body injuries. Um, you've got a quarterback who is a pending free agent who's holding up signs about paying him. It just feels like the the Ravens' model in, uh, entirely offensively for the stretch here is, hey, Lamar, make miracles happen. And yet, if I think if you ask most NFL pundits, like, hey, who are the top teams in the AFC? They go, obviously, Bills and Chiefs as the top 
tier class. But usually I, you know, you still hear the Ravens mentioned as the next ones down. And and it's hard for me to kind of understand how they missed out entirely on any sort of help for their quarterback. Well, I mean, I think what they believe in, and, and I'm not sure they're wrong, but I think they think that this likely kid that they drafted in the fourth round from Coastal Carolina is going awesome. to be their guy, right? I think they feel like they feel like he's got a chance to really be something special and give them an inside receiver. I think what we don't do enough of when we talk quarterbacks in the National Football League is truly understand where they want to throw the football. You know, quarterbacks are like basketball shooters, right? There's spots on the court guys want to shoot. You know, there's spots on the court that they can make shots and they feel really good. It's the same thing with quarterback. You ask Tom Brady wants to throw the ball between the numbers. He wants to throw the ball in the middle of the field. That's what he's really good at doing. He doesn't really want to throw nine routes and outside to the sideline. He can do it, but that's not his forte. Same thing with Lamar. Lamar wants to throw the ball in the middle of the field. That's why Mark, Mark Andrews is so effective for him because Mark Andrews runs a lot of routes inside. The year he won MVP, he had Mark Andrews and Hayden Hurst. He had two inside receivers. So Baltimore needs to pack the middle of the field with tight ends and inside slot receivers, and they haven't done a good job of building that. Now, last game they played, likely came and played well in place of Andrews. So now I'm thinking with Andrews and likely, if they can get that combination going once Andrews is healthy, this will help Lamar more than trading for a big an outside receiver. They, they've done this, you know, Bateman, they've done, they've gone off with Sammy Watkins. That's not really going to tilt the, tilt the, 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 the needle for them. They need to have a guy that can get inside. They really need a slot receiver. They need another tight end. And I think likely can be that guy. Yeah. Likely had just an incredible preseason and just grabbed, he was like a preseason star that grabbed everybody's attention in that game. You, you saw some of that. Um, I completely agree with you that, you know, that is definitely historically the guy that you want to have with Lamar Jackson. I just couldn't help but think like, hey, is there no sign of faith where, you know, you've also had guys like Hollywood Brown. Lamar isn't afraid to throw that nine route. How do you not end up in a Brandon Cooks trade? Um, how does that fallout go from here? Like, what what are you hearing with Houston? Because I like normally I wouldn't be bringing up a story about the Houston Texans in the post trade deadline, but like that was a pretty unique tweet that Brandon Cooks had, and then for him not to be playing on Thursday night, like you gotta wonder what the fallout is there. Yeah, I mean that this has kind of looked to me like a lack of communication, right? Like if you're gonna tell a player you're gonna try to trade him, then you you, you can't say oh well you know we're asking for a two and a four which is a ridiculous number to ask for guys do all this guaranteed money next year nobody wants to take on debt see what fans don't realize is there's two elements to every trade there's the player and then there's the contract right so you got to you got to be willing to take on both you know and so when Robert Quinn got traded the the Bears said we'll pay his salary okay the Eagles said sure you can have our fourth round pick you know so that's that's kind of how it works. So what the Texans were trying to do was basically not trade them, you know, because if you're trying to unload 18 million, you're not going to get a two back for that. You're not going to do get a two back for that. So you didn't, you really weren't honest with the player. I mean, if you're going to tell the player you're willing to trade them, you got to tell them what the conditions are on to trade them. You know, Hey, look, just be a man about it. Say, look, I'm not trading you unless I get a second round pick. And I think it's going to be really challenging. You make $18 million next year and nobody wants that. Now, if you're willing to walk away from that guarantee, I'm sure I could probably get something done. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not walking away from $18 million guaranteed. Um, no, <laughs> and nobody would. And, 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 and nobody would. And nobody wants to absorb 18 million of guaranteed yeah. money. If nobody wants to absorb your foolish contract, 
They'll absorb yeah. their own foolish contracts, and trust me, teams make many of them, and I've made many of them. But the reality of it is, is you can't you can't do that. You can't trade a dumb con. It's hard to trade a dumb contract. Well, I imagine too, with that hitting Houston's cap the next year, they'll try to resolve this before you know this becomes a situation where a guy gets released. But yeah, the second reason why I asked it is, like, if it does get that ugly, could he end up being on the market? And if he doesn't, how big do you think the demand gets for Odell Beckham? Because like now that seems to be sort of popping back up. And I I don't know what your sense is in terms of um, the the type of player Odell is going to be after this injury, like whether he can come in and get an impact, but. There, there do seem to be a lot of teams that you could say, hey, they could use him if he's even like a, a shadow of his former self and given the price of the receiver market. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question, right? What is he going to be like? You know, is he going to be a guy coming off an, of an ACL? Yeah, probably. Is he going to have juice in his lower body? I doubt it. I mean, the name looks good on the depth chart, right? It's like Julio Jones in, in Tampa. Oh, my God, they got Julio Jones in Tampa. Like, he never gets on the field. How does that look for you now? You know, it's like, okay, great. We got Julio, but he never plays. You know, it's like having a great car that you can't drive. So, you know, what, what, unless Odell can play at a high, high level, and let's be honest here, if you're Buffalo and for, for Odell to make an impact, he's got to play at a high level. You're not putting him out there and taking a guy that's been in your system who's playing well. You're not putting McKenzie on the bench to put Odell out there if he can't play at a high level. I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard for any player coming off an ACL to play at that high of a level who's had no practice, who's had no training camp, who's really just trying to rehab himself and doesn't have a sense of timing with the quarterback. I mean, to me, it's more of a desperation move. It makes everybody in the media happy. I mean, look, the worldwide leader will give you an A for trading for Odell Beckham. They can't wait to do that because, you know, they get more clicks and people pay attention to their network because of Odell. But in reality, as an executive, it really doesn't do you any good if he's not helping. Well, one of those desperate teams might be the Rams. Um, can we write them off if they lose to the Bucks this weekend? And if that ha- like what happened to this team? How did this this fall off happen so precipitously? Well, I think two things. I think Matthew Stafford. You know, first of all, they can't run the football at all. They have their offensive line is a disaster. It was a disaster last year. I mean, they're going to go down as a Super Bowl winning team, probably one of the worst Super Bowl winning teams in the last twenty years. I mean, they got very fortunate to win the Super Bowl. If they got called on a delay on a, a false start on the third and nine, that Cooper Cup got the penalty called on them. If that, that, should, that play should have been stopped, it should have been a false start. It, horrendous, horrendous miss by the NFL officials and they kick the field goal there, the Bengals might win the game in overtime. But that's beside the point. Look, they can't block in their offensive line. Stafford's arm, his movement, his ability to hold on to the football, he's gotten hit way too much. They are no longer the Rams. They are the Lions from when Stafford was there. They throw the ball all the time. Every time Sean McVay looks at his play sheet and he wants to call a run, he wants to kill himself because he knows he's going to get one yard. So why am I calling runs? But then when he calls passes, he's worried about getting his quarterback killed. So I don't think the Rams are a real threat. I don't think they're just going to turn this thing on. Like, there's no magic formula. They're not going to lose 50 pounds in a week and all of a sudden get skinny. They're going to have to do a lot, and they don't have enough players to do a lot. And they're going to go into Tampa, which is rested, coming off of their bye. They've got some time to think about. Now, Tampa's not playing well either. These are two of the worst running teams in the National Football League, 32nd the Rams, 31st Tampa. And so they both don't play with physicality. It's going to be interesting to see. One of these teams is going to get better. I just don't think it's going to be the Rams. So before you go, um, you know Bill Belichick very well. Um, what do you think he was trying to do or trying to accomplish with the way that he's handled Mac Jones this season? I think what he's trying to do is get him to stop turning the ball over. 
I don't think it's really that. It's not revolutionary. I mean, look, the Patriots program is all about we're going to avoid losing before we win. That's the program, okay? We're not going to give the ball away. We're not going to have penalties. We're going to do what Marcus Aurelius once said. We're going to organize the the secret to all victory lies in the organization of the non-obvious. We're going to handle the non-obvious. And when you turn the ball over, you're not going to play here. You're not going to play. If you consistently want to be reckless with the football, it's going to be hard for me to keep playing you. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, that's just, oh, he's Mac Jones. you got to keep playing him. No, there's a, there's a standard of excellence that comes there. So I think he's trying to get him to not turn the ball over. I think he's trying to get him to get comfortable with his pass protection, to get his eye level up the field. And I think he's got to get the offensive line to play at a higher level. This isn't just about one thing. It's about a series of things. And I think it's a challenge as you're building your team, as you're trying to recreate your team. I think it's hard. So do you think that he still believes that that's his long-term quarterback of the future? I think he does if he can get him to stop turning the ball over. Look, Mac Jones is simply this, right? Mac Jones is not – he's not going to wow you with athleticism. He's certainly not going to wow you with his arm strength, right? What does he have to wow you with? What he did last year – he turned the ball over too much last year. But what he wowed you with was his decision-making, his anticipation, his ability to read, his ability to throw the ball on time, right? That's what he has to do. He's got to do all the little things well so that the big things don't get in the way. And when he doesn't do the little things well, when he makes mistakes, it magnifies his lack of overall great skill. Now, he can overcome it, but you can't give away stuff like he's given away. Yeah, uh, if you listen to this, then you should know that uh, you should listen to the GM Shuffle podcast. Uh, Always super informative. Uh, Always feel like I come away as a smarter football fan. Uh, Michael Lombardi, uh, thanks so much for making time today. Thank you so much. Take care. Uh, Former NFL exec and the Daily Coach newsletter. I got to tell you that the Tua thing, that actually did take the Dolphins out of the teaser. I I think the Dolphins will still win, but he's right. Tua does throw a bit of a duck. And if it's windy in Chicago, maybe they're not out of the teaser, but we're definitely checking the weather report. I always say check the weather report. The only reason that I don't sometimes do it when it comes to sports betting is because I feel like it can also throw you off a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, it's time for action brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings app to get in on the action. Must be 19 plus. Must be physically present in Ontario. And you must play responsibly. Okay, so yeah, let's get in. I'm going to get into a couple of the picks for this weekend. A little rapid fire uh, before we hit the break and before we talk to Jonathan Papelbon about what was, yeah, just an awesome World Series. Uh, an awesome game. Didn't go my way. Uh, I like the Phillies. I, I've been actively rooting for the Phils. Now I kind of think they're dead. I hated seeing their fans get their hearts ripped out of their chest by Chaz McCormick, who is from there in center field. Ugh, just a crushing, crushing blow. Nothing worse than when the hometown kid who gets inspired by your team uh, comes back to murder you. Like, that's just... It's, we're past Halloween. I thought we were in the Christmas season. It's supposed to be positive Christmas stories, but no, we're still in the Halloween spooky zone with the way Chaz McCormick just did his Phillies. A um, couple of things that I like on the board this weekend. I, I think that this is a good spot for Aaron Rodgers. I've been fading the Packers. I have not liked them at all. I'm not like Sweet Pete, who, for whatever reason, decided to back the Packers against the Bills and thought they could win outright. Whew. Uh, they're not very good. I just don't trust them as a team, but I think the Lions are a complete mess. That the wheels are off, and they can't do a damn thing. And them going up on the Dolphins last weekend and scoring a bunch of points is is not throwing me off the scent for a team that was coming off the bye 
and scored on a defense that you just heard Lombardi talk about is one of the worst in football. Do I think that the Packers have a good defense? No. Do I think that they can stop the run? No. Do I think that there's real potential for a Lions backdoor cover here? I absolutely do. But I just, I think that Aaron Rodgers is going to see those Lions jerseys and remember that all he's ever done is cave in this division. All he's ever done is crush the Lions, crush the Bears, crush the Vikings, and that has been the formula for this guy to get to the postseason. And the Packers still have that. Like, they're probably not catching the Vikings, but they still have those two teams in there, and they still have a game against the Vikings where they've got to feel at least some measure of this season isn't over because of our ability to crush these teams in a flat NFC. So it might sound foolish, might sound kind of chalky picking the Packers of all teams against the spread, but I think that minus three and a half is too short a line. I think that Aaron Rodgers is going to figure this out. I think he's going to put up points and that if the Packers can generate just any type of pass rush, they're going to be able to turn over Jared Goff. They're going to be able to dial up a couple of blitzes that work against him. And yeah, they'll come out of this one with uh, a victory. So yeah, I'll be playing them in teasers on the minus 190 money line. I'll be playing them at the minus three and a half. Uh, I just like the Chargers in this game. Um, quickly, a couple of other ones I have on the radar. I, I think that the Bills crush the Jets. Um, I don't. I don't really see the formula for the Jets to stick around in this game. Like Zach Wilson, he looks bad, and he looks like a guy that's trying to make too many things happen. And now that they've lost Brees Hall, dude, eleven actually just seems like. You can throw the Bills money line into teasers. Like you can tease the Bills down to minus two and a half. You can kind of find ways to do that. I just like I, I don't see the the thing. The Bills were plucky. The Bills had some juice. The Brees Hall injury really did like slash their their tires. I, I don't I don't think the season's going well anymore. And now it can have a chance to turn really negative because of what might happen with their quarterback. Like did I've listened to some of his post game quotes. And Wilson was talking about not really being a guy who likes to throw the ball away. And I'm going, dude, that's being an NFL quarterback. Got to throw the ball away. And he just, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to have that full buy-in. Still is trying to make plays down the field. I don't know. I just, I like some of what I see from Zach Wilson. I think he's a crazy athlete. Not sure if uh, the brain is there. I'm doing everything in my power to avoid betting the Las Vegas Raiders, by the way. I need uh, help after last weekend when I put them in a teaser. Uh, but I did see that minus one and a half line. It did really stick out to me. And I went, are we serious? This is what it's going to be. It's against the Jags. The Jags. Jags are at home. Jags are better at home. Maybe I'll just zag myself and bet the Jags plus 100. Because, like, I just I cannot quit this Raiders team. I don't know why. Even though, like, nothing is working out for them. Derek Carr looks bad. Devontae Adams is uninvolved. The running game has been good. Darren Waller's like out of the league now. From went from being like next Gronk to out of the league. And by the way, I like the Bucks. That's the last thing I'll say. I like the Bucks. I think the Rams are trash. I don't think that they can move the ball. Um, I'd be a little nervous about what Cooper Cup state is heading into this weekend. And this just feels like if you're the Buccaneers, um, you want to, A, get the revenge for the postseason last year. And you want everyone to stop talking about you. This just feels like a get-right game for everybody involved. Um, I, I like the Bucks. I like my I like laying the three, but I also like the minus 140 money line if you're a little bit of a coward. Uh, that Those are my picks for this weekend. 
Uh, those are my favorite bets as of right now. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at JD Bunkus or on Instagram. It's the same handle if you ever want to reach out. Uh, I got some props that will be coming up later in the weekend uh, after I do my deep dive, so follow there if you want to play along. Uh, that was Time for Action, brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings app to get in on the action. Must be 19+. plus. Must be in Ontario. Please play responsibly. Is this one of the greatest bullpens that we've ever seen in the postseason? Or is that just the only way that we know how to talk about things? Can we call Justin Verlander a choker anymore? Is that gone? And does Jonathan Papelbon root for his old teammate Bryce Harper? Or does he hate his guts? That's all next. Again, what an awesome game last night. Tons of drama. The Philly kid sticks it to his team. With a big play at the wall. God, you know, like the the relief that Presley felt when he made that catch. Must have been enormous. Um, Astros are up. Real good chance to close this thing out. And stick it to the, all the haters like me. Jonathan Papelbon, six-time All-Star, World Series champion, host of the Black Jack and Pat podcast. Good morning, buddy. What's up? What's happening, man? What's happening, guys? My buddy's from Canada. What's going on? Dude, are just do you hate the Astros? Because like I hate the Astros, and I like seeing them have success hurts me physically. Like I, I, I don't want this to happen. What it looks like is going to happen. Are you still are you still tied up on the whole cheating scandal? You haven't gotten over that one yet. No, I, why would I get over it? Like I see Altuve every time he runs around. I'm like, this guy wore a wire. I'll never be convinced of anything otherwise. Ah. Like I just, I, I, I can't, I can't get over it, man. And like Philly is so fun, and that fan base is so awesome. And yeah, like I just, I love Schwarber. I'm really into that team. And so yeah, last night sucked. I can't believe it because you know I'm a Blue Jays fan. I don't really care who ends up actually winning this thing. But it's just fun to yeah. hate on the Astros, and it's fun to have the whole like you never won a legit. World Series thing that hangs over them. Yeah, no doubt. I, and, and me, you know, I, I mean, being a, being from playing in Philly and you know being the all-time saves leader for the Phillies, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm going for the Phillies and Harper and Schwarber and all those guys, man. You know, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on that. I'm definitely going for the Phillies, uh, but uh, what scares me is is, is they've got to. Um, they're going to have to make adjustments these last few few games, and they're going to have to make big, big adjustments. Um, you know, their whole philosophy is a is a lot different than the Astros' philosophy. The Astros' philosophy is, is and I'm speaking on part of the bullpen because when you get to playoffs, um, you win with your bullpen. The starting pitchers get it going, but it, it, to me, everything comes down to the end with the bullpen and. Um, I just feel like their bullpen is being managed better. And yes, uh, you know Rob Thompson. He he he's um, he's using guys in high leverage situations. He, he's the high leverage guy. Oh, let me bring my closer in in the fifth. Well, from my standpoint, do you know how hard it is that every day you show up to work, you don't know what inning you may be pitching, you don't know who you may be facing, and you have to constantly stay ready in case that game gets in a high leverage situation. Well, over 162 games, that is tough, man. But yet the Houston Astros bullpen, they all have specific roles, and they know when they're going in so they can prepare better. And so 
you know, they're going to have an uphill struggle. I, and, you know, they're going to have to hit the ball a whole lot better than what they've been hitting the ball. And, you know, I think it's been a great series so far, but um, can't let them pull away tonight. They've got a, they've all hands on deck tonight for the uh, fighting fields, that's for sure. Dude, I just it's it's the bullpen difference in this series is massive, and you just feel it so heavy, right? Like, I, I like he Thompson pulls Syndergaard, and I'm going, yeah. Why are you pulling him now? Like, if you were going to put him out for yeah. this inning, then why are you pulling him after he gives up the one home run? And if you were going to pull him, then pull him out before he sees the top of the lineup. Like, have some conviction in terms of which way this decision is going to go for how you're going to handle the rest of this game. But, like, the Phillies just feel like they're cobbling together innings from the bullpen and you're just sweating it out, right? Even their best guys, you're going, this is a sweat. And the Astros' bullpen has just been dominant. And, like, yeah, if Philly's going to win, it really does feel like they have to get to these starters. And, like, man, Verlander just escaped it, right? Like, he put eight base runners on. He gives up the first the first pitch of the game, goes over the, the fence. Yeah. I'm going, please let the Verlander choker narrative continue. Because, again, I traded narratives, buddy. Like, I love how this works. Like, I wanted to come on here today and ask you if Verlander's a choker and do this whole thing. He gets out of it and yeah, you just feel like the game is over once it gets there. Like I was shocked when the Phillies almost felt like they made it a game in the eighth when they started to get to that pen. Like that's not how I feel about the Astros. I feel like they're in it the entire way because the Phillies don't have a bullpen. I guess the question off of this is how good is this Astros bullpen to you? Like I try not to do the whole like greatest of all time stuff because they're clearly not that. And that seems to be how we frame things. But they, but you got to admit like they, they actually kind of are the story of the Astros postseason is like how good this bullpen has been. Well, like I said earlier, guys, when you get to the postseason and you do not have a bullpen, you will not continue to win. It's very, very simple. Um, in fact, every year that we had a chance with the Red Sox uh, when I was with them, and you know, Theo Epstein knew that we had a chance to get into the postseason, he was going out and getting Billy Wagner for me or Bobby Jinks or somebody else in that bullpen to help us out because he knew – Postseason boils down to your bullpen. And the thing is, is the Phillies bullpen has to be perfect. And when you play high leverage situations and say, oh, let me bring this guy in. I've got to get out of this situation right here. So I'm bringing in my best guy, right? Well, with that being said, you don't have the ability for error. Okay, so all these Phillies pitchers and guys in the bullpen, they got to come in. They have to be perfect. There's no room for error. So I, I just, you know, Thompson's a new manager, and, and he's sticking with his philosophy, and he's going to live by the sword or die by the sword. But there is just not much room for error for this Phillies pitching staff and mainly the bullpen, and that makes it so damn tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I think they're done. I don't want to believe they're done. Part of me is just trying to reverse curse them. Um, but since we're here, since we're talking about bullpens, I did want to ask no, you about the – I think they're done just – just yeah. for, you know, I hate to say it, and I'm still pulling for him. Don't get me wrong, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can but, pull for him and be a realist. Yeah, no, I've always been a realist. I've always talked to the media as real as I can. So um, at the end of the day, I'm being real, and it's um, it's going to be an uphill battle. And they're going to have to be perfect for the next three games. Or no, we got two more games left. Yeah, um, so yeah, so they're going to have to be perfect these next two games in order to pull this out. Now, can that be done? Hell yeah, it can. But they will have to be perfect. And see, the Houston Astros, 
are managed a little bit different by Dusty Baker, who I played for Dusty when I was with the Washington Nationals, is a very great manager, and you can't take that away from him. And uh, he's got a very, very keen sense on his players and when to put them in. And so his players and his guys, they have a little bit more room for error. He's not putting them in these high-leverage situations where there isn't. So, um, you know, here's the big difference. Dusty is managing where as soon as, like, one guy gets on or there's a situation where it starts to – the momentum starts to go towards the Phillies, he stops it, he brings another guy in, he gives him a chance to get out of it, and that's just not the same situation with the Phillies, you know? Yeah, I uh, I was I was pretty critical of Dusty Baker um, so far this series, but now I'm just like, yeah, I just think all managers are just it's postseason time, so I'm just blowing them up whenever anything doesn't go their way. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about bullpens, um, just because, like, yeah, dude, like you're uh, one of the greats, and you said it, like going into the postseason, uh, Theo Epstein, who was also one of the greats, um, loaded up yeah. with the with the bullpen, and this postseason. Blue Jays blew an eight-one lead. You may have seen it. Um, yes, it yes, yes. It it's unfortunately real yeah. bad. And and the worst part about it though is everyone, everyone was on the take of hey, the Blue Jays need to load up the bullpen. They got to go get power arms. They got to treat this seriously going into the postseason. It's been like a couple of years now where the bullpen's been pretty shaky. They go out and get Zach Pop and Anthony Bass. And Bass has like good under like he has good numbers, but he's not like the traditional power arm that you see. Like they blow it. And and I wonder, you know, they clearly got exposed and now everyone's heading into this offseason saying like now they absolutely need to do this. They can't screw this up again. But how many arms do you think you need like out of a bullpen to be just nasty, just high velo arms now to win? Well, you need at least 3, okay? Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, and and obviously the games evolves and it will continue to evolve. But at this point in time, I think you need three. Um, but okay, here's here's the big thing. If you're a general manager, and you know when Anthopoulos was there, I used to always be like, "What in the hell is this guy doing?" Like, you know, like like. You're not going to get them any help, and they're a really good team, and they just think that they can just keep winning. Well, no. In the postseason, if you don't have power pitching coming out of your bullpen, you will not make it. I just uh, I just don't know if they have more than one and a half guys right now, and so I'm going to need yeah them to add quite a bit. What do you think of Jordan Romano, though? We got you. We lose him? Yeah, sounds like we lost him. Uh, we'll try to get Jonathan Pavelbaum back on the line. thought that he cut out there. I thought that that was a cutout. Did seem like a short answer. I was like, all right, whatever. Um, yeah, Jays are going to need to add a lot more, man. Uh, there's just It's, it's going to need to be more than one arm. I don't know how anybody could watch in this and be feeling good about the Toronto Blue Jays prospects heading into, yeah, postseason next year if this doesn't drastically improve. And, like, the Phillies are kind of like – the best case scenario that the Blue Jays could be, right? It's a team that has awesome star power in the middle of the top of the lineup, right? That you feel like they their first five guys that come to the plate, you feel like they they can all make a difference. But then once it gets beyond, like the, it's not a good team defensively, which I wouldn't think that anyone would argue the Blue Jays are. Like, yeah, just ask yourself if you're watching the series as a Blue Jays fan, like which team do you feel like, you know, 
has a closer path to what Toronto does. It's like, yeah, that shakiness that Philly feels right now, that all their Philly fans feel right now, like if Zach Wheeler doesn't go in the next game and give them seven strong, they're going to feel hooped. Like if he has to come into the game after the fifth inning or in the fifth inning, like that's going to be real trouble. That's how I still feel about the Blue Jays. Yeah, so Jonathan Papelbon rejoins us now. We were just talking about the, the Blue Jays and how many arms you need. You said it's three. I think that the Blue Jays kind of have one and a half right now. Um, yeah, maybe they have some internal options, but yeah, it seems like you think they need to go out in free agency and like pay somebody or make a big trade. Look, you know, like I was trying to say before I got I lost the call, but if you want to if you want to be serious about competing and the, today's game, you cannot have a bullpen that doesn't have power arms and multiple power arms. It's just how the game has evolved. And I like I was saying earlier, I used to always I couldn't ever understand um, like I was saying, Anthopolis, I think he was a GM most of the time I was there playing against y'all. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had some great teams, man. You know, you're talking about the Halliday teams, the Aaron Hills at second base, the Vernon Wells, and all those great players and pitchers. And they didn't do crap. And I'm like, how? How can that happen when you see what you have and you can't go out and get something to help? It just – and look, I know there's um, you know luxury taxes and caps on uh, salaries, all this you know stuff going on now. But at the end of the day, you got to know what you need to win. And I just, I don't know, man. If the Philly, I mean, if the uh, Blue Jays want to be successful next year, they're going to have to revamp their entire bullpen, in my opinion. You keep Gosman, maybe, but I mean, you know, uh, it's it's going to be a tough road ahead if you don't have a bullpen. That's just always been – and I'm talking specifically playoffs. You can get through the season without it, but come playoffs, you're dead if you don't have it. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I think that they're going to need to add at least two arms, and they're certainly going to need to add some power arms. So I've been dying to ask you. Like, you, you're obviously cheering for the Phillies. Like, that's clear. Like you said, you've got the, the numbers there. You're part of that team's history. You've played with guys there. But do you root for Bryce Harper? Because, like, yeah, man, you you got into it with Bryce. I don't. I still don't really know why that happened. I, I kind of forget. I just remember you being up on the top step yelling at him, and then all of a sudden the camera flashes into the dugout, and it's the two of you being separated. Um, but do you root for him? Like, do you like the guy? Um, okay, so here, I'll break it down for you real quick. The reason why we mm-hmm. about playing the game the right way the day before, and, it, and, and the next day it didn't happen, and um, – Anyway, you know, the scuffles happened, and, and, and we got into it. And there was a disrespect factor involved in there with him to me, I felt like. And, um, you know, here's the thing is, and I don't know if y'all saw this about Dusty Baker, but me, Harper, and Dusty Baker were all together with the Washington Nationals. And they asked Dusty Baker about Harper. And he said that, you know, he's got a lot of respect for Harper now and, you know, that you know, when he was coaching him and stuff that, you know, they had a lot of run-ins, you know, run-ins that the, the media didn't know about. And that, and I've witnessed a lot of those run-ins with Dusty Baker and Harper, but Harper has matured now and he's actually gone to Dusty and said, Hey, you know what? I appreciate, you know, those times where you got on my ass or, or, or whatever the situation, or we had that run in because now I understand. So I think Harper's evolution and maturity and, and, and everything you throw into uh, someone who's uh, 
you know, the face of a franchise. I think he's starting to understand what it takes to do that. And man, I don't, I don't hold, I don't, I don't hold things. You know, um, I've spoken with him, and you know, uh, I, look, I, the past is the past. I don't really care anymore. But um, yeah, I, I, it's not like I, I mean, it's not like I root for him or root against him. I'm just rooting for the Phillies. You see what I'm yeah. saying? Um, but man, just like same thing, like with dusty, they had plenty of their run-ins. Me and Bryce had, and we ain't the only ones that have had run-ins with them and, or in other, it it happens. Yeah. But this Uh, is why I asked it to you. This is why I was asking you is because it's like, it's weird with baseball, right? Because you don't watch it the same way you do with like the NBA or the NFL, where it's just like a national sport and you watch every team all the time. Like everybody knows about like LeBron's evolution, right? Like KD's evolution. They know about quarterbacks in the NFL, like Tom Brady's career arc. A guy in baseball can be a star player like Bryce Harper. And then we just get like flashes of them. And then it's like, we're checking back in like, Whoa, what's going on with Bryce Harper now? And it feels like a lot of the Bryce Harper story is he's like a different guy. He's a more mature guy, but the guy from before, I think the guy that you played with, most people would have kind of described like, hey, what are you going to describe him as? It's like douchebag. He's a douche. Like, or yeah. he's jerk. Like, you know? And so, like, yeah, I do wonder with guys like that where you separate from it and you watch it and you go, I can't really root for this guy. He was such a douche to play with. It was so hard to play with him. Good for him if he's done better. But, yeah, like you said, I'm not rooting for him. I'll root for his team. But, like, it isn't – there isn't love like that. Yeah, no. I mean, it's – um. You know, you move on and and you and you play the game. You play with hey, look. And I, when I was a rookie and I was uh, immature and all that, I got my ass kicked about every day. You know, who kicked your ass? And, and it was a little bit, it, it, yeah, it was a little bit different back then. You know, it was a lot harder on the younger guys, and you know, I don't think that really exists anymore. But you know, here's the thing, and this is the reason why I freaking love hockey. And man, with whether I was in Boston with the Bruins or Philly with the Flyers, man. Those guys, and now the hockey, the goon, all this stuff has kind of changed in hockey, which kind of pisses me off because I love freaking hockey, even though I live in Mississippi, you know. Um, I wish they wouldn't try to, like, they're you know, they're trying to, like, clean the game of hockey up a little bit. It kind of pisses me off. But, um, man, this, like, those guys would go after it all night long, and then I'd see them at the bar this, this, an hour or two after the game hanging out. <laughs> And I'm like, this is Was great. One particular bar legend, one bar legend from those Flyers teams or those Bruins teams that you just always saw. Wait, say it again. I couldn't hear you. Was there one just like bar legend, one of those guys that you just couldn't believe it, like you always saw in Boston or Philly on one of those teams? Oh, Marshawn was the best. Love Marshawn. Yeah. Yeah. Marshawn and Bergeron were my boys in, in, in Boston. I, I love them. Um, but yeah, like that's the reason why I love hockey. And and baseball's not you got a lot of prima donnas in baseball. I'll be dead honest with you. You just really do. It's just the way it is. And um, you know, um oh no, we got in a brawl, let's let's like hate each other. No, man, let's let's figure it let's get we got in a brawl, yeah, okay, well let's talk about it, let's figure it out, let's move on and let's go drink a beer. Just like the guys in hockey. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. I, well, listen, I love that. I'm a big believer in you should be able to have a blow up with somebody and then come back from it if they know like your character and if you can kind of humble yourself a little bit. Plus, like, yeah, it's not like you had a Draymond situation with Bryce. You know, like you didn't you didn't knock him out cold. You guys did get separated. So I do think that you can come back from scuffles and that you can be better. That's probably a good life lesson. It's like don't be a prima donna. And then if you get into a fight with a colleague, just, you know, try to go for a beer after rather than escalate it to somebody else. Hey, uh, Jonathan Papelbon, it's always fun getting to chat, man. I love getting to pick your brain. Yeah, man. All right, guys. Take care, man. Love the show, man. Take it easy. Take it easy, man. Thanks. Thanks for making time. Jonathan Papelbon, six-time All-Star, World Series champion, host of the Black Jack and Pat podcast. And, yeah, um, that's that's like that's how I feel about Bryce Harper, right? I think all of us would admit this. Like, unless you're some kind of crazy diehard uh, baseball fan that watches every you know just follows the league so incredibly closely and does really track these things to me it was always like Bryce Harper is a douche Bryce Harper is annoying he is the prima donna but he's so talented right he's one of those oh this is an undeniable talent players but this isn't like a beloved guy in baseball and now all of a sudden he's kind of become that and I don't think that those adjectives are the way that you would describe a lot of the Leafs players, but if if there has been more leadership or more of a I get it now from Barry Sarper, a guy with all the talent in the world who is, uh, yeah, unquestionably one of the greatest players in baseball, if he has added that component of better understanding of how to be a leader in his clubhouse, how to be a better personality to be managed by, I think that's just like a good lesson for just about any young player with talent who isn't a leader right away. But I do also think that that's probably a good lesson for some of the Maple Leafs as well as they head into a big series against Boston and a big season where people are kind of questioning the character of the group, the composure of the group. So anyway, yeah, I hope the Phillies get it done. I hope Bryce Harper continues to get it done because, God, I just... Like, you know how fast when we turn off the TV, if it's Philly's World Series champ, like, I will not see the MVP award being handed out. Everybody have a great weekend. Go subscribe to the podcast. Shoot me a follow at JD Bunkers, Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, leave a five-star review if you do like to follow Spotify, Apple, whatever. Um, Saturday night, Leafs Talk, Sam McKee and I, Sportsnet Now. We'll see you then.